Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we've just got a teeniest, tiniest bit of housekeeping to do before we launch into the episode. First, shouts out. So thank you so much to Scott, Isabel, and Delson for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and supporting the show. Yes, thank you. And thank you also to another patron, Bart, who sent us a donation to add to our Pass the Mic Small Grants Program Fund. And just yet again, listeners, your support of whatever variety, whether it's listening and and leaving nice reviews, subscribing on Patreon, donating to Pass the Mic, the lovely emails we've gotten. We love when you reach out. It all means so much to us. And we're very grateful for the community that has arisen around the show. Yeah. It's just really nice. It's just really, really nice. Um, But for now, let's get to the episode at hand. Um, And and so this is maybe the first in what we hope could be a recurring series. We are going sightseeing. Yeah. So there are so many archaeological sites out there, and some of them tend to overshadow others. And we're always saying on the show that we have so much to learn. So in an effort to do that and share the process with you listeners, and also to highlight some of the potentially overshadowed sites, Amber and I have each chosen an archaeological site that we didn't know much or anything about. Yeah, so we're basically going to pitch each site to one another. Uh, We're going to hit some highlights of the archaeological assemblages, the excavations, architecture, if any, um, and associated culture, anything that kind of pops out to us. Uh, So these will just be brief explorations. But if in the course of doing episodes in the series, we come across something that really grabs our interest, we can always do a more in-depth episode on it later. So let's take a quick ad break. And then we'll dive right in with Anna's site du jour. Du semain. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. 
we're back. And when we uh, when we do these episodes, if something about either of the sites that, that we talk about particularly piques your interest, um, A, you can head over to thedirtpod.com and, and check out the show notes because we'll have all of the resources that we use to find out about the sites. Or just let us know, email us. And if we get emails saying, oh, this was so cool, we want to hear more about it, then we're more likely to do a full episode diving deeper into that. Okay. Here we go, Amber. Okay. Um, Where are we going? I am, I am transporting you. Oh, boy. To Genet, which is also sometimes called Genet Geno. So this is, this is a Malian city. It's still a city. Okay. It's 220 miles southwest of Timbuktu. So it's... Okay. Uh, it is in the, the country of Mali in Western Africa on the Niger River. Uh, it's sort of in, in a delta. It's in a river delta between the floodplains of the Bani and Niger rivers. And because it is on these floodplains, uh, it becomes an island sometimes. There are oh. seasonal floods. And when the floods happen, the city is an island. So this oh. is... Janae is one of four archaeological sites comprising the old towns of Janae. So this whole complex of sites is a UNESCO World Heritage sort of protected site. But we're just talking about Janae today. Um, it is the... So there's there's two things. I, I, I need to do a little bit of disambiguation here because there is the, the old city of Janae, and that is what is <laughs> um, referred to as Janae Geno. Because that literally translates to like old Jene. Um, okay. Yeah. And so about a mile away from that is a newer city that is also the modern city. So the newer city was founded sometime between the 8th and 13th centuries. We'll get there. The other city is older. Okay. So, so people have been living there for a really long time. years or so in the yeah, new one. In the new and one. The and then. One. Dates back is, to about 250 BCE. Does anyone live there still? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, it may it may have been kind of, um, well, right now it's a protected site, but at some point it may have been, you know, still lived in, but it was an outpost or like a, I don't want to say suburb, but a, a hinterland of the newer Janae. Okay. Yeah. Um. So the the modern so the the newer town Janae uh, is it has buildings that are hallmarks of Islamic architecture in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there is substantial pre-Islamic occupation as well, especially in the old city. But um, it's when Islam arrived in the area that the city shifted. So it moved out of. So the older city was sort of allowed to fall into disrepair, and activity and and building shifted about a mile away to the new city. So first we're going to cover sort of the archaeology stuff, and then we'll get into the political and history stuff, and then something that really confused me. So first of all, um, there's going to be a video link to a YouTube video um, in the show notes that'll take you on a little video tour of the city of Jenei. So it's, it's, very, it's very pleasant to watch. So let's talk about the archaeology first. Okay. So... Amongst the most interesting finds at Jene Geno, so this is the old city, are terracotta sculptures. And so if you scroll to the bottom of the document, Amber, you will find a couple photos of these. Uh -huh. These often depict a bearded male figure, sometimes helmeted, sometimes carrying weapons, often riding a horse, not always. And these are interpreted as, as probably not depictions of kings or rulers. Many figures seem to be of ordinary people who are, if they're not on a horse, they're often kneeling or in a sitting position. Um, they have characteristic sort of very square, flat chins. They typically have their faces upturned in, in a way that's not, you know, a contortionist could probably do it, but it's like a stylistic, okay. not particularly realistic pose. Um, and multiple eyelids, which is to say two. <laughs> the source like that I upper was upper and lower. Yes, or like, like fish, like no, a crocodile not like, with like the not the, the nictitating one. Okay. membrane. No, 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 not that. It just multiple. I just chuckled at the phrase multiple eyelids, but the normal human number two. Um, <laughs> so these fi figures are two, two per. 
per eye. Yeah. 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 Four per face. The, the math adds up. Great. Um, so typically these, these people are wearing a short kilt um, or they're naked, but they have necklaces or bangles. They're, they're decorated on their wrists and ankles. And they also show ritual scarification. So there are incised designs that seem to suggest deliberate scarring in, in, the, in the same way that, that ritualized tattoo might be, yeah. might be done. Um, this was the part that really interested me. Curiously, a high proportion of the figures have been given symptoms of tropical diseases and may have a snake attacking them. Uh, see the second figure that I yeah. put there <laughs> where some guy is just covered in snakes. Um, so these figures can be up to 20 inches in height. They're either hollow terracotta or they're reinforced with an iron rod armature. And so they're, they're incised. Some were probably painted because there are traces of colored paint on them. Uh, it's unclear whether they were all painted. And all of them were found in a domestic context. So that suggests they okay. may have been intended for household shrines because many of the, the residential spaces have these sort of uh, niches inset into the wall, which would likely be sort of a household altar or shrine. Okay. So it was the so symptoms is, of tropical disease that, so that really... Pre-Islamic... Yes. You have like sort of the household shrines and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and some of what I read suggested that this was, um, ancestor worship or it was, um, it didn't, it didn't give a clear sense of the mythology or cosmology or religion behind these figures, but suggested that maybe it had to do with, with ancestor worship. So sure. Why not? Um, Okay. Political and historical stuff. It's timeline time. So, as is the case with many, maybe most or all, trade hubs, which Janae was a very powerful trade hub, uh, Janae has had lots of different groups running the city, controlling trade, sort of stamping their name on the documents. Whether that mattered to Joe Townsperson, unclear. But here is a brief timeline of power grabs. So around 800 CE, the new Janae is established next door to the older city as a meeting place for traders coming from Sudan, which is, you know, the desert environment, and Guinea, which is a tropical environment. So lots of different types of commodities were probably passing through. The old city, Janae Jano, had a population of around 20,000 people between the 6th and the 9th centuries CE. And, and it was big. It covered 300,000 square meters, at least. Enough. Uh, enough. You got you to gotta put 20,000 people somewhere. So the city may have been the center of a wider state or kingdom um, around the sort of 9th to 12th centuries, I think, is when the Malian Empire, the Mali Empire, was sort of in full swing. Um, and, and I'll get to that because there were conflicting sources. Um, but there is evidence of around 15 smaller settlements surrounding the larger old city. We don't have evidence of whatever the political apparatus was. Um, there's no existing written material. Doesn't mean they didn't have a writing system. Doesn't mean they didn't have a way of keeping records. I just, there's no existing written material. So... There are also in the old city um, specialized workshops for potters and metal workers. And so that indicates at least internal trade, if not external. Um, so then the old city undergoes a bit of a decline. It sort of uh, falls into disrepair and then is revamped by Muslim traders in the 13th century CE. So at this point, the location of the city shifts or the city center rather shifts to new Janae. And when you say Muslim traders, do you mean like people who are not from there? Yeah, there seems to be a wave of Islam, essentially, but it's it's people. It, the, the religion is it's not people converting solely. It's a wave of people coming in and then also the local people converting. So okay. Islam kind of takes over. But I my impression was that that pe like Muslim traders arrived and then Islam spread out from that. So, so they they arrived to sort of set up a like a way station on a trade mm -hmm. route there and be like, 
This will do. By the way, to work before. Yeah. By the way, have you heard of Allah? Have you heard the good word? Yeah. So from this point, so from the 13th century CE, the 1200s, until around 1468, the Mali Empire was the main holder of power in the area. I have found conflicting sources. I saw one source that said Jene was part of the Mali Empire and was ruled by the Mali Empire. I found another that said it was its own separate entity, kind of like a Sanxingdui vibe, like in the middle of a, another huge polity, but totally doing its own thing. Um, so I'm not really sure what was actually happening in 1468 or by 1468 or possibly 1473, because I also found two dates. Um, the city was captured by the Songhai Emperor Sonny Ali. The Songhai Empire flourished in the 15th and 16th century, originating elsewhere in West Africa. And the Songhai Empire fell to Moroccan forces and Moroccan kings took over the trade post at Jene until the 1780s. And then in the 1860s, there was a brief stint by the Tukalor Emperor. This was a group uh, originating in Senegal and the emperor's name was Al-Hajj Umar. Uh, but then in the 1890s, it was occupied by the French. And then sort of from there, everything gets very colonial. So... Now we get to the thing that confuses me. Okay. And I maybe you can shed some light on on it. Maybe we will both be confused together. I did what I usually do for preparing these episodes, which is I just I compiled a bunch of sources first, pasted all the links into the document and then went through and and started reading everything, right? And as I was doing that, I kept reading these articles about Jene being a trade hub and Jene being this outpost for salt and gold and all of these things coming from West Africa and going elsewhere. Um, and then I found a paper that is titled Initial Encounters, Seeking Traces of Ancient Trade Connections Between West Africa and the Wider World by Sonia Magnavita. And so I'm going to I'm going to quote a couple of chunks from this article. Quote. The long-standing, more mythical than fact-based assumptions about ancient trade contacts between West Africa and the wider world prior to the Arab conquest of North Africa have only been substantiated by archaeological evidence in recent years. Although the number of imported items known to have been brought into West Africa during late Roman and Byzantine times just started growing, the mechanisms of their diffusion are still far from being understood. This can mainly be set down to the dearth of convincing material evidence from other archaeological sites in West Africa, the Sahara, and North Africa, the result of a lack of research and perhaps, too, of trade in invisible merchandise, end quote. So invisible merchandise mean, meaning ephemeral, not just like yeah. cloaks of invisibility. Well, like ephemeral or also intangible. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to read another quote quote, a few isolated glass beads of non-West African origin were also excavated in Jene, Jeno, Mali. One of these likely derived from Asia, somewhere in India, Eastern Asia, question mark, and dates to sometime in the third century BCE to the first century CE. Two others, glass beads, have a distant but not securely determinable origin. <laughs> From far away. They came from somewhere in the greater Mediterranean slash Near East region and date between the 4th and 9th century CE, end quote. So I guess the, the big question there is, was there trade? Like, was Jenei a trade hub before Muslim traders showed up? And it seems to have been, is the thing. I don't know what in that, what in what you just quoted suggests that there wasn't trade. Well, just it that wasn't it's it's asking an where the where the evidence for trade was before Islam and before sort of new Janae. It's saying that there's there's such little trade evidence before this period. I'm not saying it's saying that that there's no trade, but yeah. Well, it seems that the that the reason why it appears that there's no trade is that there hasn't been adequate research. And also the materials that were being traded um, aren't being captured in archaeological excavation. Yeah. Like I think it that this, this, like this research seems to focus on like trade across the Sahel 
And yeah, but also the fact that it, it existed as, as a place that seemed to do quite well. And it had 20,000 people. And, and then I mean, was yeah. like sort of rehabbed. Yeah, um, yeah. repurposed. It seems like too much of a coincidence that a place could exist and do quite well. And then later, traders from Become elsewhere a, yeah. appear and be like, this will do. Like, it, it seems that this was a. Um, you would think that there would be a precedent. Yeah. For, and I for do think successful that, trade. I do think that Magnavita is arguing that. Okay. And is saying, like, because you don't. It, it tends not to be like a complete accident. That something gets from South Asia, it do, yeah, to the Sahel. Heck of a so coincidence. Yeah. So I think that like the sort of like glass beads are showing up. But are you looking at things like salt? Salt doesn't make it in. Yeah, the, where um, you know through up the, like through into the archaeological record, or um, I don't know, lick the or, dirt maybe. <laughs> don't lick the dirt. Don't it's lick not. the dirt. Yeah. No. Okay. So I basically what's happening is that I was overthinking it. I think, yeah, because it says this can mainly be set down to the dearth of convincing material evidence from other archaeological sites in West Africa, the Sahara and North Africa, the result of a lack of research and perhaps okay. to a trade in invisible merchandise. Okay, And so if you're sort of going into it, not not looking for any trade because you don't <laughs> expect there to be any trade, you might not be picking up on that trade. Yeah. Okay. Um, that does exist. Okay, well, that sorts that, that out for me. The, the spread of Islam, it was sort of a feedback loop between economy and faith because you have Islamic finance and the way that business is done. And so it was very much like a if you want to opt in to this wide-reaching and extensive and productive trade network, you need to opt-in. And so it was sort of a, um, that was part of what helped the spread of Islam be so effective and sort of like permeate mm. cultures is that mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't just a set of faith tenets. It was also an approach to sort of social structures. And, and so having, having sort of social structures around uh, comparably more equitable business practices and and like less predatory business practices and also social welfare and like all of these things that are sort of built into it it was it was it's not a desirable proposition it's it, yeah so the on the there's the the one side of it that's sort of the caliphate and kind of the islamic conquest that was sort of like a military like expansionist approach but there was also it was sort of like, you know, carrot and stick uh, sort of thing. <laughs> if you want, like there was sort of the, um, to whatever extent there was kind of conversion under duress, which you see in Christianity spread, um, yeah. like in the Americas Lots and of, stuff. Yep, but there also sure. is sort of like a, it's a, it's an entry point to participation in uh, an incentive, in a wider, a wider society. Yeah. And so that's, um, huh. So that See, I was I was really hoping that you could sort of school this school me in this and and sort of place it in context. School you. Yeah, yeah. Also, I'll take vague. Also, some vague schooling. Mm -hmm. um, I believe sub-Saharan Africa as a term mm -hmm. is a like very like UN developmenty term that uh, kind of smacks of prejudice. <laughs> yeah, I you know I. Think about that a lot, actually, because it is, if you just look at the words, which is never a way to, you know, it's oh, this not is, the way to do gonna it. You're going to get into like the like weird fake um, uh, etymology that like New Age no, types no, 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 do. No, no, <laughs> no, I just mean like it's a ge geographic designation, but because it has the word sub in it, I think it, it carries connotations of less yeah. than. Yeah. And, and. I certainly, yeah. Like, how is that helpful geographically? Only in the sense that it helps me rule out the part of the map. Like, I can take out part of the map and then get it wrong on the bottom two thirds. It's, that's my cool. cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, just just do, something to note accepted. Something Thank to you. think about. Of thank like, you. 
I don't like terms that come from kind of development standpoints and kind no, of that's a trying good... to like help the global south. No, just, teachable yeah, moment. Teachable moment. And yeah, I, I couldn't find because I did like a little, you may have, I don't know if you saw me like I did see you tippy tapping. I was yeah. like, oh no, what did, I, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do bad? But no, I've, I've seen, I've heard this discussed before and I've seen this and I couldn't find anything really like punchy and concise about it. But, um, but it is a geographic designation determined by the UN. Yeah, I do want to be more, much more sort of cognizant of, of that and sort of understanding where I've learned things without necessarily uh, engaging with them. Because, you know, because like that's something that I learned. The phrase sub Saharan Africa is something that I learned, like, I don't know, probably in middle school going to museums. You learn in like your seventh grade geography class. Yeah. Like where I was super into geography in seventh grade like that was like one of those classes where i'm just like tell I, I me know. more yeah just sort of I like know. <laughs> yeah um but yeah okay i think about these things a lot uh, so islam mm. in jenna yeah so in addition to its commercial importance and i guess probably coming along with the sort of commercial incentive part of islam um jenna was also renowned as a center of Islamic learning and pilgrimage, and it attracted students from all over West Africa and elsewhere. So the first mosque in Jenei, we're going to go through like a, a, a trilogy of three mosques. Oh. Yeah. So um, I found several sources that gave me this information, although at least two of them started it off saying, according to tradition. Oh. So bear with me. Okay. Uh, so according to tradition, the first mosque was built in 1240 CE by the Sultan Koei Kunboro, who converted to Islam and turned his palace into a mosque. He was just like, you know what? It's a mosque now. We don't really know much about the appearance of that first mosque because it was considered too sumptuous by Sheikh Amadou, uh, the ruler of Jenne in the early 19th century. And okay. so the Sheikh built a second mosque in the 1830s and allowed the first one to basically fall into ruin. Okay. So, so we don't know what it looked like because so it, it like- fell down. So some of the earliest descriptions that we have come from the French explorer René Cayet, a man with just a lot of letters in his name that you don't say don't need to be there yet. <laughs> C-A-I-L-L-I-E. Kaye. And so he wrote about it in his Journal d'un voyage à Timbuktu et à Genet, which is Journal of a Voyage to Timbuktu and Genet. He saw it in 1827, sort of just before it was replaced, like within a decade of its replacement. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote that the building was already in bad repair from the lack of upkeep. Based on his description, the visit likely coincided with a period when the mosque had not been replastered for several years. This will come up later. Um, But all the construction at Janae is mud brick, uh, often plastered mud brick. And so the plaster is to protect the mud brick from being washed away by the rain. But if you don't keep up with that, the rain washes away the plaster too, and then wears (laughs) away the mud brick. So so the... (laughs) And it just looks like a big sandcastle. Yeah, melted sandcastle after the tide comes in. Yeah. So the great mosque, the the one that is extant now, the third mosque construction, replacing the one built by Sheikh Amadou, who built the like, yours is too fancy. This one's better. Mm -hmm. Like that was mosque number two. So so Mm -hmm. mosque number three is built on a raised plinth of rectangular sun-dried mud bricks that are held together by mud mortar mm-hmm. and plastered over with, can you guess? Mud. It's mud. The walls vary in thickness between 16 and 24 inches. And the thickness of the wall depends on the height of the wall. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, it's necessary to have such thick walls to bear the weight of the structure, but also it insulates the structure against the hot, hot heat. Not the so, band. Nope, not the band. <laughs> <laughs> the mosque's Internal prayer hall has 90 wooden pillars supporting the ceiling and can contain as many as 3,000 people. Um, and so all of that insulation helps the mosque stay cool when yeah, seriously. in the event of 3,000 people's worth of body heat being in there. The Great Mosque, God, I love this so much, 
all of all of this, the next couple things that I'm going to tell you. I just I love this so much. The Great Mosque also has roof fence with little ceramic caps. These caps are made by the town's women and can be removed at night to ventilate the interior spaces. Just like you take the little hat off. Yeah. At the top of the pillars are conical extensions with ostrich eggs placed at the very top. In the Malian region, these are symbols of fertility and purity. Um, so there are, and, and we'll post some pictures of this mosque on social media. It's got these timbers, um, like the ends of the timbers, the beams are, are jutting out through the surface, like the, the facade of the building, but they go through and the, those are, um, some of them are structural, some of them are decorative, but they also, the, the fact that they poke out onto the outside wall, they act as scaffolding for when the mosque needs to be replastered and there is an annual festival of replastering where the mosque gets a gets a little facelift so um Um, you describing the traditional architecture and sort of the like the technologies mm -hmm. used for essentially air conditioning um, yeah reminds me at camp this week it was you know it was like 200 percent humidity it was just like super soupy outside and uh one of my colleagues was like oh and so we would like go into the like the lodge or whatever, there'd be like the air conditioner on. And we all thought we had COVID because we were all like super clammy instantly. It was just like a real, <laughs> like we never learned. But my, one of my colleagues was like, oh, what did people do before air conditioning? And I was like, hmm, traditional Let me tell you about it. <laughs> and, um, and then they had to listen to me talk about traditional architecture. But yeah, this is very cool of having quite, quite literally very cool of having hey. these um, thick walls that, Inso- like because insulation works both ways keep it yep. cool inside and then at night you can sort of release the the heat and allow take the little vents breeze, off and yeah just allow a breeze to come through and then you close it and then it stays nice cool, and cool in the, the morning brilliant yeah there is a slight downside in that replastering has caused some issues namely it's it started to make the building too heavy like the plaster coating has gotten mm-hmm. too heavy. Um, and so there was briefly, not briefly, there was for about 20 years or so, um, there was a ban on plastering of any of the historic structures and that included people's houses. And so people who lived in the the historic areas of, of Chennai were just like, my house is dissolving. Yeah. So that's the thing when UNESCO comes in and decides that something is world heritage, because it's not yours anymore. No. And, and, and so, you're like, can I make my house better? And, and like, so, no. yeah, people who have the misfortune of living in these like symbols of human heritage, they often lose a lot of agency. It's very, it's it's like, yeah, it's fraught and it's, it's like interesting from sort of a thought experiment direction, but it's really, it's really um, somewhere between frustrating and uh, and tragic and like (laughs) cruel, like in practice, somewhere along that continuum. Well, just, just one more thing. Similarly sort of fraught and, and frustrating uh, because this is something that is also discussed in the same way as, as historic places uh, is manuscripts because this was such a center of learning for centuries. um, There is a manuscript library. So it's directly adjacent to the great mosque um, and currently work is underway sponsored by the British library endangered archives program in London, which again, like who is this for? But I guess they have the funds to do it. They are working to preserve physically and digitize the many, many thousands of Arabic manuscripts that survive in the city. So these include not just handwritten copies of the Quran, although there are lots of those, but also medical, scientific, and legal treatises, oh. books of magic, and transcriptions of oral history as handed down by griots or minstrels of West Africa, because Mali is sort of the center of the the, the griot tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the material dates back as far as the 11th century. So that's cool. it's yeah. And there's there is lots of discussion about you know should this be digitized? Should some of this be sort of kept not secret, but like the idea of of I don't know who gets to have the information. Yeah is is a ongoing debate yeah and so that is that is what i have learned about janae and janae janeau and now you know (laughs) (laughs) 
You want to have an ad while you finish laughing at my joke? Yes. One more ad. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. All right, we're back and it's my turn. So my site is in northeastern Thailand. um, So on the side of the country that's closer to Laos. Uh, So this site is called Ban Chiang. um, And I've been thinking about it since I recently visited the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. This time I, I sort of looked at the, I, I looked at the collections that I've seen a, a dozens, millions of times uh, for sort of places that I hadn't thought about before or things that I hadn't noticed when I was there previously. And one of these was a placard that I saw. So I saw these like really gorgeous ceramics and I'll include similar examples from the Asians online collections. I couldn't find the ones that are, they, they, they didn't seem to have digitized the ones that are on display here in this case. Um, but I read the following text off a placard. So this is, um, this is an instructional bit um, that I'm quoting with the, the title, A Bronze Age Site in Thailand. The prehistoric site of Ban Chiang in northeast Thailand, first excavated in 1967, brought to light one of the earliest Bronze Age cultures in Southeast Asia. Archaeological remains from different levels in the soil indicate that the site has been inhabited for thousands of years. Ban Chiang is best known for red-on-buff painted pottery vessels, which were found only in the uppermost, so least ancient, layers of soil. Lower layers revealed a great variety of equally distinctive pottery. The oldest are probably the black or dark gray burnished and incised pieces. In burials, more than 20 types of vessels of various sizes were placed on top of the skeletons, below the legs or above the head. In some periods, the vessels had been intentionally crushed when placed near the deceased. In others, they had been left intact. Other Artifacts uncovered from burial sites suggest a highly developed metal industry. Both male and female adult skeletons were adorned with bronze and iron jewelry, such as bracelets and anklets. Beads, rollers, and wire necklaces were found only in the graves of children. Archaeologists using advanced scientific methods can discover all sorts of interesting and important information about the past, such as where ancient people came from, what they ate, and how they died. The objects shown here were not excavated scientifically, so what, oh, no. so what they can tell us is incomplete. We don't know how these objects were found or how they reached the art dealers who offered them for sale. I mean, way to be upfront about it, but also... So, aw. For what it's worth, the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco has done, has has had quite a bit of reckoning with um, sort of how it got its stuff. A lot of the stuff that founded, that sort of serves as the foundation of the collection, was stuff collected by this guy, Avery Brundage, who was like a real piece of garbage. Um, (laughs) But this one, so this collection is, is from the, like, Eleanor and James so-and-so collection. And so I looked them up because I'm like, who are these people? And I knew her. Uh, she's dead now. But Eleanor, oh, um, so she was a, um, he was in the military and like in Korea. And they loved, they loved Asian art. She was a docent at the art, at the Asian art museum. Uh, she started the storytelling core. And so I had met her a couple times um, sort of later in her life through the work that I did there. And so they just were a couple who collected some art and then donated it to the Asian Art Museum. So I was just like, what's going on here? So what was involved? In, so I wanted to know what was involved in the excavations at Ban Chiang and how much heavy lifting the phrase not ex- excavated scientifically was doing. Yeah. So um, in our our remaining time together. Um, hmm. I just want to share a bit about the site 
and its excavations and like what's involved there and um, a little bit more about um, unscientific excavations at Banqiang. <laughs> So, as for the discovery of the site, um, the story of how Banqiang was found goes something like this. It, <laughs> you reading it? Sorry, I read, I read two lines ahead and I'm <laughs> giggling. So, in 1966 CE, um, an undergrad, uh, a, a Harvard undergrad, and former U.S. ambassador to Thailand's son uh, named Stephen oh. Young... Uh, was walking through the village of Banjiang while conducting interviews with his honors thesis. Um, and while doing that, he tripped and fell on his face. So from his new vantage point on the ground, um, he noticed a sort of stony ring pointing out of the path. And then At least he took a moment to like, since I'm here. Well, and then he noticed other rings. So they were buff colored rings with little red designs on them and something totally new to archaeologists. I also saw in an article written by the uh, Thai half of the U.S. Thai um, mm. co-PI team that um, some some like residents of Banqiang had accidentally discovered it in, 19, in 1957. Did they fall on their face? No, they just how? they just lived just there it? and it was eroding. So it was the process of erosion. Uh, and so they were gradually coming. And so that's why you were only seeing the rim. The top ring. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, mm. so the first excavations be because also I think he like went and like told like the queen or like the princess or something. He was like connected and he's like, what look what I found. Um, so the first excavations began in 1967. Um, and this was um, like Thai based excavations, but a bit of a whoopsie regarding dating one of the ceramics. Oh, that's that's not 19- what you want. <laughs> in 1971. Cause then like this stuff happens. I'm not saying that like, that yeah. these sort of because like given, also this was the the sixties given well this was the seventies uh, but oh. the point the point still stands but also sort of like given the trajectory of research I don't want to give anyone the impression that I think that Thai archaeologists were incompetent and therefore oh, no. we had to have an American team come in that's not what I'm saying like there's all kinds of reasons why you can like mess up your dating um, yeah. So this it's was tricky. so this was thermoluminescence dating mm-hmm. that was happening on it, and so like it, it just didn't work. It just didn't work right, and there was a published date of uh, forty six thirty BCE for like Bronze <laughs> Age stuff, which caused everybody to freak out. Seems um, unlikely. So well, but they but this sort of this was still a time when there were kind of sort of diffusionist ideas about technology still kind of kicking around. And so, Um, and what's that Amber? So that is where diffusion diffusionism is where um, a technology is developed or invented or perfected. And then, and then spreads from that point of origin. And so people kind of encounter it and then adopt it. That is rather than concurrently figuring it out. Multiple elsewhere. places yeah. um, where people are making similar findings and coming to similar conclusions and sort of like a convergent, like the technology converges to something that looks a lot alike. If, if there's this idea of, um, you know, Southeast Asia, which um, I don't know how much about world history our listeners know, but Southeast Asia in the late 60s and early 70s was a pretty tough place to be. Um, also, this this province where Banqiang is, is where Air America was based, like where the like CIA uh, like airline mm. <laughs> was. And so there mm-hmm. was um, so the U.S., the U.S. was very present here for its um, ongoing military activity uh, in Vietnam. Surrounding countries. And surrounding countries, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so so the idea that like ceramic technology not ceram- started there. not Not ceramic technology. Stone? No, the Bronze Age. So metallurgy. Oh. So oh, wow. Because, because so there were, there were 
uh, metal objects and ceramic objects that were found together. Mm, okay. And so they, so they dated the ceramics and got 4630. And they're like, oh my God, the Bronze Age started here. They invented the Bronze Age. It's earlier than anywhere else on earth. This is sort we of the cradle. Of, this is the cradle of civilization kind of thing, okay. which like, okay. that is always a welcome idea to people who have sort of, uh, nationalist ideas or, are feeling a bit downtrodden. Um, so to, to put it euphemistically. So, you know, um, that was a little spike in morale, I guess, yeah, probably. So, so this like impossibly early date of the ceramics combined with their like gorgeous distinctive shapes and designs spurred on a spate of looting by community members. The demand was there. I do not blame sort of... I Locals. use like I yeah I don't I don't mind yeah that doesn't bother me um the way that anyone else in the chain bothers me because when you're if you're somebody that doesn't have like any kind of connection to this but you No, if you're barging in and it's it's even more not yours. <laughs> like <laughs> So like if I like if if you know if if I'm in some kind of any kind of economic duress or even if I'm not and there's something that's like well, this, I don't I don't need this. Sure, I'll sell it kind of kind of thing like yeah i'm not mad at that that's not who i'm mad at um so um so these were like hot these were the hottest things and so people looted them and they got they they got quite a bit of money out of it also fakes started popping up at markets because they were still very hot um the king of thailand visited banchyang in 1972 and um and kind of asked questions about well, what connection might the people who we're meeting in the archaeological record have with people here? Also, come on, guys, let's protect cultural heritage. <laughs> Just sort of like, um, and so the thing is kind of shifted towards like more like scientific inquiry um, and less looting. Um, and so the University of Pennsylvania launched a full-scale excavation from 1974 to 1975. It was called the Banqiang Project. Um, so it was a binational project. It was done between Penn and like the Fine Arts Department um, at uh, in the, the Thai government. Okay. And so there were co-PIs, one American, one Thai. Um, Good. Six tons of material was sent back wow. to Penn for analysis. Um, so it was it was led on the American side by uh, Chester Chet Gorman. So he was at the Penn. He was at the University Museum. Uh, he was an archaeologist who had been working in Thailand for a minute, um, and so he was he was well connected to Thai archaeologists, and so that's how he was able to kind of get this moving. Um, the, so the project is still going. Um, and so he was the, the leader until 1981 when he died. And he was succeeded by Joyce White. Um, and she's still in charge of it. But it's under the aegis of it. the Institute for Southeast Asian Archaeology. But something that like really, really uh, stood out to me was that there are two anecdotes. They're just like, ah, Chet, you know, Chet. Uh, there are two anecdotes about him and both are extremely sexist. <laughs> and it's just sort of like, um, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's not funny and it actually was kind of triggering. But so the first, <laughs> the first one is that Joyce White uh, was his student. And there's like, Joyce remembers like when she was a first year student and she was determined to be a Southeast Asian archaeologist. And she went into his office and was like, I want to be your student. And he says, I don't take female <laughs> students. <laughs> And, um, and, but she cool persevered, guy. but she persevered and eventually became his only female student. Great. So that's a fun story. Um, and then the other one that I just like really like couldn't, I had to walk away from my computer, uh, because it's something that, um, is extremely on brand for archaeologists who were excavating in the seventies. Mm. It just really brings us, if anybody's listened to the uh, the episode that you and I did with uh, with Olivia Manners' show mm, in the mm -hmm, domain mm -hmm. of women. Go check it out um, if you haven't. Anybody listening to that might 
might understand why I have so many pregnant pauses in me trying to <laughs> contextualize this. Um, so I'm just going to quote from that website that put this uh-huh. out there for the public to read and thinks that this is nice. Quote, if Chet became the subject of a conversation, it was sure to lead to a colorful story. One such story involved Chet, a woman named Carabel, and a distinctively shaped Banxiang pot. It ends in a way that could only be Chet. That's Chet. <laughs> That's Chet. <laughs> I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call any future Title IX complaints I have. <laughs> only be Chet. Um, so, in 1977, Chet was giving a talk to a ceramic society in Hong Kong where he was showing slides of Banjiang pottery. As he was going through all the different pottery types, a beaker, a globular cord marked, a white carinated, he came upon a particular pot in the slideshow which hadn't been assigned a name yet. A woman named Carabelle, whom he had met briefly before, inquired from the audience, Chet, what's the name of that pot? To which Chet responded, why, it's a carabel pot. And the woman asked, oh, why is it a carabel pot? To which Chet replied, because it has a nice round bottom just like carabel. Chet recounted the story to Joyce when he returned to Philadelphia. This was the part where I got really triggered. Years later, in 1982, when Joyce was writing the catalog for the Smithsonian's traveling exhibition of Banjiang, Discovery of a Lost Bronze Age, she had to give the name give a name to the pot, which appears on page 69. Not knowing the spelling of Carabelle's name, Joyce termed it a Carabelle-type pot. There's a extra A it, in there. Yeah. It's just one letter off. Spelled differently. That's fine. Years later, in the 1990s, Joyce met Carabelle at a mutual, and a mutual friend for lunch in Manhattan, and the story was retold. Far from being offended by Chet's comment, Carabelle thought it was one of the highlights of her life, and she wanted the story to be told at her funeral. Well, good for so, Carabelle. Good for Carabelle. Still... But can I ma- can may the record show if anybody tells a story about me getting sexually harassed, I will haunt you. Yep. So let's talk a little bit more about the ceramics. The so-called Carabelle pot on page sixty-nine, uh, which I have linked in the show notes because they included a scan of the page in the in the story to really like drive home the like yep the the comment. Um, so it's dated to the fifth to 4th century BCE and is one of several items found in the grave of a one-year-old child. So it's argued that the burial was comparable to that of an adult in terms of the stuff in it. Um, And this leads White to suggest that this could be evidence that not only was there a social class structure in ancient Banqiang, but also that it was hereditary, hence a baby getting adult-level grave goods. Hmm. Um, that it isn't sort of like a in recognition of your achievements. It's sort of a. Um, it's not a lifetime lifetime achievement. Yeah, good. yeah. It's not. Yeah. A little more related to your family's. Status. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe sure. that could be it. Yeah. So the ceramics themselves uh, tell us more about the culture that produced them. Rice husks were included in all ceramic sherds studied, um, and appeared to be a deliberate additive to the clay to make it more workable and less prone to shrinking during firing. So that's called a temper. If you remember mm-hmm. from a million episodes, the dirt podcast. And so it is not uncommon for in, in communities where you have, you are growing a grain for, or processing yeah. a grain for take advantage of having all that like chaff yeah exactly so you have that stuff discarded from and and so it it often it often matches what they're eating so i like the first couple times that i read there was like rice residue i was like oh there was like cooking rice but it's like no it was it's just like stuff yeah they put grass in it yeah So a 1982 article in Penn's Expedition magazine uh, talks about the process by which researchers studied rice temper at Banqiang and other sites um, in the area of of similar like Bronze Age sites there. Um, Mm -hmm. So the ceramics suggest an industrial level usage of rice. Either, and so industrial, like sort of being like large scale, um, either as a domesticated cultivar, it's hard to tell because... The husks all look the same. Yeah, wild rice looks very yeah. similar. Yeah. Um, yep. Or maybe it was just a staple of their hunter-gatherer food repertoire. And, and you know, it's um, you can modify the environment without domesticating stuff. So it mm-hmm. could be that they're sort of like 
Especially rice because it just involves like maybe altering a waterway. Yeah. Or, yeah. So they because it needs flooded areas. Yeah. To so grow. it could have been wild rice that they they weren't Managed. like foraging for rice. They were yeah they were managing. They knew it where and, it was. <laughs> yeah, and and were kind of helping it along maybe, but they weren't doing sort of like the process of cult of domestication. Also, I it, I would be remiss if I did not say tell you that two of the commonly cited other researchers in that article had the surnames Rye and Grist, um, and I how <laughs> and I cannot get over the nominative determinism involved. In like becoming a paleo- plant domestication, a paleoethnobotanist that looks at plant domestication. Yeah, rye and grist. So you can look at more of the ceramics in the virtual galleries of the Banqiang National Museum. There isn't a ton of English on it, but there is enough to let you access and see in like 360 view these like really gorgeous ceramic pieces. But yeah, and there's there's pictures, which is like that. There's yes, yeah. I, know, I can uh, do that. You may be like, well, what about the architecture, Amber? Well, too bad, um, because the excavations in 1974 to 1975, those two two seasons that produced six tons of material, um, it consisted of burials. They were going kind of fast, huh? Um, they must have. Um, oh. I don't know. Metal's heavy. Um, so Okay, that's fair. But still so chunking out six tons? Yeah. It, yeah, so this was uh, burial. But also, um, Chet was um, really um, forward-thinking in terms of how involved computers would be in processing materials. So he was sort of trying to record everything. And like there was like stuff about, they had like an IBM computer that used punch cards. And so they were like punching it um, to, to do all this stuff. So there probably was a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily. Um, but uh, so a bunch of it got sent back to Thailand in the 80s, uh, but a bunch of it is still at the Penn Museum and it's still being <laughs> studied, which I don't care to think about too deeply. But these were the burials of at least 142 individuals. Um, and so rather than thinking about this as a cemetery um, and that like them going there and digging up all the people who are interred, it's much more likely that these were residential burials. So we we've lost sort of the ephemeral architecture of people living above it. Um, but this would be where people were buried beneath the homes of their families and then their descendants. And so after that initial dating of more than 6,500 years ago, um, and it, when it seemed like this was the earliest Bronze Age culture on Earth ever. Um, we have to rethink everything. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that indeed would have turned entire paradigms on their heads. Um, but the real story also shifted some paradigms. Because prior to this, uh, it was thought that there was no metallurgy or metal technologies in South Asia until at least 500 BCE. And that <laughs> they came from elsewhere. Um, also metallurgy is, is often thought as coming about in sort of in response to, or along with, uh, or perhaps prompting military needs, um, and, and sort of highly stratified complex societies. Uh, but there wasn't any evidence for large scale military action or rampant violence, especially yeah, like metal's good state for a lot violence. of other stuff too. Yeah. And so this was something that kind of shifted this, this idea of like, well, perhaps this could be a relatively peaceful, perhaps egalitarian society that also has metal. Like maybe you come up with metal for other reasons. Um, so, the emergence of metallurgy in Southeast Asia wasn't the result of diffusion from more civilized parts of Asia, which it, which would have been China, uh, yeah. is uh, what yep. people would be arguing, or India. But instead, it was a more nuanced process. It isn't the earliest, but it's also much earlier than um, previously than 500 believed. BCE. Yeah. Um, yeah. So – there's an open source site of the metal artifacts excavated from Banqiang and neighboring Bronze Age sites in northeastern Thailand, uh, and where you can browse galleries of the bangles, adzes and blades, bells, clumps, um, <laughs> and and other Which artifacts. Is- just to be really, really unnecessarily clear, that is not an artifact type. That's what happens when metal corrodes so, together. Well, there, there, yeah, it. there are like fragments, sort of like flat fragments. There are wires. Mm-hmm. There, there's slag. There's yeah. also like a couple crucibles. It's like very cool stuff. Ooh. And so they have it all divided out, and you can look at it. Um, Clumps. 
Yeah, so it just is there a category that says clumps? No. Like, is it just sort of like other? No, no, clump is oh. is um, my categorization. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got like splitters that's, and lumpers of people that like you're form. a clumper. I'm a clumper. Yeah, um, that's so uh, that's the type just that describes my body type. Oh, <laughs> clump. Uh, so regarding a kind of high level overview of the chronology as it's now understood, so somewhere between the first ever and like basically the last. Um, so there's sort of the, there are sub periods to each of these, but there's an early, middle and late period. Yeah, makes Andy. sense. Um, so the early period is, is now, the early period is now dated to uh, between 2100 to 900 BCE. So it's very early. Very yeah. early. Yeah, very early. And you've got some like. Um, it's 2000 years later than originally. Yeah. Dated, but st- that's so not, not, still. Yeah. So not like earth shatteringly early, but 1500 early. years earlier than people thought anybody bothered doing it. Um, yeah. So the middle period is from 900 to 300. So that's where that uh, the carabelle jar um, and that burial, that that child burial that yeah. dates to the middle period. Um, and then the jars are ceramic, though, right? They're not metal. Correct. The jar- ceramic okay, jars. Just, yeah. Just uh, yeah. I just wanted to talk about ceramics and, and metal. I would have only talked about ceramics, but like the whole Bronze Age things, so I had to talk about the metal because um, I was be perfectly content to just talk about this. We know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the late period uh, from 300 to 100 BCE, um, oh. and that is where that was the date of the ceramics that I was looking at at the Asian Art Museum. So um, one, the one last thing that I want to share is to kind of revisit the whole thing about not excavating scientifically. Um, So on January 24th, 2008, 18 years after the site was added to the UNESCO World Heritage Register, um, more than 40 years after Stephen Young bit it walking through the village, um, and five years after the investigation had started, U.S. federal agents from the IRS and ICE um, raided two antiquities dealers and four museums in Southern California as part of a sting for trafficked antiquities and tax evasion that focused on Banxiang ceramics and metal artifacts. Um, and so I saw some photos that were taken of, of, um, of white, like, looking at them like kind of going into authenticate the stuff yeah choice white and it was just like a table like a sort of like kind of like library table you know it's like bigger Mm -hmm. than a dining table covered Mm -hmm. in ads blades like wow just like so much stuff um but as of 2012, no charges were made. Um, but the four museums that were raided were the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, so the LACMA, the Bowers Museum, the Pacific Asia Museum, Pam, Pam. and the um, Mingai uh, International Museum. So mm-hmm. that might be why the Asian was like, we just do not know. Uh, because... I, I looked on First Dibs. Uh, are you familiar with the website I, First Dibs? I googled uh, Banchang Pottery <laughs> to just because I wanted to see what it looked like, but and you pick that up was some one for of the yourself. Yeah, yeah. It turns out uh, I could have one to store my umbrellas in. Sure could. Um, and so, but I, I, I won't. This is this is an ongoing issue. So you know, in like the indeed the early seventies, they were sort of the kind of looting and trafficking and now it's 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 still ongoing and sort of the ramifications are still still happening and still so finding the stuff and going oh. yeah and so things are being repatriated to thailand Good. Um, Good. things are being scrutinized and so this is also something good. that is for good reason a lot of attention uh, that's paid to uh, trafficked materials from the past looks at human remains and objects that we know to have sacred meaning, mm-hmm. sort of there's a, a sanctity to them that is is shared by descendant and present communities. 
not, this isn't a zero sum statement that I'm making. It's a shame (laughs) that this, that stuff like this can be an afterthought because it is, it is gorgeous and it is valuable. There's a Um, lot to learn from it. And and, yeah, you know, provenience would be nice. Yeah. And and so it's, it's just something that uh, becomes just, it's just art. You just like fall in love with the art because you spent a few years there in the seventies. And uh, now you want to collect these things. But I was looking on first tips and I could get a lovely Jozon uh, Celadon vase because those are some of my favorite is sort of the Korean um, Celadon ceramics, like these very like almost like satin finish uh, with like the Celadon green, like really gorgeous. And I could I could pick one up from a, from Lotus Gallery based in Austin, Texas, selling on first dibs and I get free shipping. Let's nod you that though, huh? Yeah. So it was just sort of, I wanted to, to bring it. I'm really glad that we did this because I've been sitting on this site that I've just been like quietly Googling for two weeks. <laughs> um, and then when you said that we were going to do this style episode, um, I thought this would be really yeah. fun. Because I didn't know I anything about good. it, but that was a very tantalizing placard. So, listeners, we hope that you enjoyed learning about Janae and Van Chung and uh, mud brick and pottery and reprehensible behavior. And we will be back in your ears next week with more content. And until then, if you miss us, you can find all of our back episodes at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find our merch and the application form for our Pass the Mic yeah! student grant program. If you are going to a conference sometime in the next few months and you are presenting your research, we want to help you. Go to thedirtpod.com slash pass the mic, all one word. Mic is spelled M-I-C. And check it out. And uh, you can also find us on social media. <laughs> Did you hear my brain stop? I think I, <laughs> I, just, I think yeah. I smell smoke. Uh, you can also find us on social media on Facebook. You can find us at the Dirt Podcast on Twitter. We're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. And thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.